What is up? I'm Miguel Antonio, and you are listening to the Live and Create podcast. It's where I interview artists and entrepreneurs about what it means to live a great life and create great things. Before we jump into today's podcast, I'd love for you to check out my band, Run With It. We got original music out on all the streaming platforms. Our latest release, which is called At Least You Tried, is up there as well. You can go uh, to runwithitband.net to find links out to that, runwithitband.net, or you can follow us anywhere you follow people at, at runwithitband, at runwithitband. And also just want to remind you that we got another live Live and Create podcast event coming up on April 15th. Uh, at Kinship Cafe in Kansas City, Kansas. It's going to be from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And if you follow uh, follow the band at Run With The Band, there'll be more details coming out on that. We got two great guests uh, for the podcast. We're also going to have a special musical guest as well performing. It's going to be a great time. Uh, we're about, this will be our third one so far, and we are having a blast with it. On today's episode, our guest is Troy McMahon. Now, I'm going to get into his bio in a second, but I do want to say that this is an extra special podcast for me because uh, like throughout my life, I've been lucky enough to have a ton of great people influence me and challenge me and encourage me. But hands down, uh, Troy McMahon, today's guest, is probably one of the most influential people in my life. Uh, he he's taught me so many things about leadership that I still apply to this day. I've you if you've listened to the podcast over the last year and a half, you've probably heard me reference him and things I've learned uh, through working with him, and then also just inspire me as a husband, as a father. And yeah, so like I said, it's an extra special one. It was cool to catch up with him. You're gonna love his story and the insights he has. So uh, let's jump into his bio. Troy McMahon is the lead pastor of Restore Community Church, a reproducing multi-site church in Kansas City, Missouri. In 2007, Troy's family and about 20 friends relocated to Kansas City, Missouri to start this new church in partnership with the New Thing Network and Stadia Church Planning. Over the past 15 years, Restore has launched additional locations and churches in Kansas City and helped launch 58 churches across the U.S. and in Colombia and South America. It is the dream of Restore to partner with God in changing the spiritual landscape of Kansas City. In today's episode, Troy shares his story of accomplishing his success goals that he had for his own life and then abandoning the safety of that success to start a whole new entrepreneurial endeavor. We talk about leading with an open hand, helping others awaken to their potential through ICNU conversations, and building your dreams while inviting your family to be part of the process. We also talk about pursuing your dreams with a quiet confidence so that success becomes an overflow of who you are instead of an addiction that can destroy you. It's a great episode. Enjoy. The Live and Create Podcast. Well, man, uh, you know, great dad, great grandpa, great leader. Um, I, As I told you, I, I texted you because... In this podcast, you're like episode, I think, 101 when this drops. Okay. And I've, so I've done a awesome. lot of episodes. Uh, and I realized one of the pre, one of the people I would mention often was you and, and just the things I learned, my time working mm-hmm. for you. Uh, and so I wanted to have you on there, kind of talk into those details, but but really just wanted to start with your story because I think it is an incredible story where you you start out in the Navy, right? You were in the Navy right. for a brief pe- yeah. period, and then you find yourself years and years later. Now you're you know leading these church planters, you know these church planting endeavors, and you're a pastor. It seems like a really right. interesting kind of thing. So so how did that start for you? Like, what did it look like even from your time in the Navy? Yeah, um, you, you know, for me, I grew up in uh, a faith tradition. My dad was a pastor. And so um, church, uh, Jesus, uh, Christianity was a part of my upbringing. Uh, and and truthfully, a very fond part, okay? I had very positive experiences. But from a vocational perspective, never thought that, a ministry, vocational ministry would be anything on my radar screen. Um, matter of fact, truthfully, um, I felt like I, we weren't particularly successful from a financial perspective as a family. And I had goals around that. I wanted to, gotcha. you know, You're I, like, I don't, I don't want to live okay. that life. <laughs> no, I don't want to live that life. I want to make money. Um, and it was interesting. I was really good academically in school at math and science. So those were two things that really came easy to me. 
And so as a result of that, ended up uh, going to college, K-State, same place as my good friend, ben yeah. Miguel Antonio. Okay. Yeah. Ended up getting a degree from, um, you know, mini Manhattan and uh, got a degree in chemical engineering. And while I was there, an opportunity came for me to join the Navy in a great leadership, really development program. It was called the Nuclear Propulsion Officer Candidates Program. Sounds and they serious. didn't sell it as a career. They, so, they sold it as a first job. They said, hey, if you want to have a great opportunity to be involved in high-tech expressions of engineering, but at the same point in time, really develop your leadership skills, this is for you. And so I'm like, I'm intrigued by that one, as well as the fact they're going to pay me to go to college for my last couple of years. That's a nice thing. So, I'm going to, yeah. And so what do I do with my money? I buy a brand new car. Stupidest mover ever made, but boy, it was really fun to have that. Everyone I know who was in the military, that was the first thing at like 19. They, yeah, they didn't list. Exactly. You, yeah, they had you a saw, baller ass You saw car. Junction City, man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you saw some serious nice rides driving around town. Oh, yeah. And you know they couldn't afford it, but they had just the same. <laughs> so I finished college and I end up uh, going and moving to, uh, Washington, D.C. with my wife. Uh, I met my wife in uh, high school. She went to KU. I went to K-State. We get married out of college, pack up our things, and head to the big city of our nation's capital. And we're living just outside Washington, D.C. I'm working for nuclear for naval reactors. We, do, we ended up doing the design and construction work for all the reactor plants for submarines and surface ships. And Wow. I had a particular component I was responsible for the design and construction of and repair in existing um, submarines. And Janet got a job as a social worker at a psychosocial day treatment program in downtown Washington, D.C. So we're here as a part of this thing. And man, my career is going well. Her career is going well. And what we do is we get involved in a local church. And that's where we kind of develop our peer group, our friends. And it's a small church. You know, I think it has 150 people that are part of it on a regular basis. And it's part of it's where we develop our friend group. And it's interesting because it was there in that context that somebody for the first time introduced me to the idea of church planting. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting around our dining room table and a friend of mine told me he wanted to plant a church. And I thought that was the stupidest idea I'd ever heard in my life. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I mean, Miguel, I've been in church my whole life, okay? And I had never been to a church building that was full, except yeah. for a funeral. So You're never like, on why, a regular basis. Why in the world? I remember uh, the first time someone approached me about church planning back when I was in college. And I actually said to them, quote, the world needs more churches like a need, like I need a hole in my head. <laughs> yeah. I, I was just like baffled. <laughs> well, that I, I had the same, I think I was coming from the same perspective you were. It was like, we got, we yeah. I mean, I thought thing. it was terrible, <laughs> terrible asset utilization. Okay. Cause that's what I was about. Like, okay, if you had an asset, you want to utilize it the maximum, maximum way to impact whatever your mission was. Right. And the church's mission was to experience life transformation for people here on earth and in heaven. So, I'm like, well, I think that's a silly idea. And then he goes, no, you don't understand, Troy. I want to start a church for people that don't go to church. And then I thought, man, you're completely off your rocker. <laughs> to me, that was about a rough market. That was about as intelligent of saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna open a steakhouse in a vegetarian village. <laughs> like that's what, that's how much sense that made. But he laid that vision out for me. I was finishing up my master's degree at Virginia Tech with a focus in engineering management and manufacturing. I loved in my Navy time, the idea of going out to manufacturing plants where we're making components and the transformation process from raw ingredients to a finished product that you would put into whatever system you design and how it would function. And what I love most about the whole thing wasn't just the design of the system, but was like what I would call the man machine interface. Mm. So the process where you have the people involvement in the process, both in the process of manufacturing, the process of operation, and how that interface could be either improved or could be streamlined that made the overall experience, both of the production or the operation, more productive, nice. more effective. So that's kind of how I was wired up in my brain. So I wanted to go work for a manufacturing company. I finished my master's degree. We had our first son there. Uh, and I got a job with General Mills. And I ended up relocating from uh, Washington, D.C. to Chicago to go work in the manufacturing side of the cereal business. So I went from designing nuclear reactor plants <laughs> to, you know, Golden Grahams and Cinnamon Toast Crunch and Cheerios. Quite a change. Okay? 
Same, same approach to systems, I imagine, uh, but uh, quite That's different product. <laughs> oh, and that was the whole driving force. The, but the interesting thing was clearly this was much higher tech, but over here, all the change that we had was much faster. Hmm. You know, you don't want to have a lot of change in the nuclear business overnight because you want to test, 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 right? We right. don't want to test. But like you can have failures all the time with food. You just think of all the products you ate as a kid and now are gone. Right. Okay. Or where did that go to? That was really crazy. Okay. For a hot second. And now nobody eats it. All right. Because that's the way our tastes and such. So that was the fun part about the food business is they would come up with new ideas. You'd have to figure out how to implement those. Hmm. And then the hope that somehow it would have a lasting impact. And for most of the products I was involved in, my five years of General Mills, they were complete failures. <laughs> well done. All right. Well done. <laughs> it was. It's I all mean, a learning process. You though. know, oh, goodness. It was. And so, I mean, there was a product called Fingos, which was taking basically cinnamon toned crutch and making it into finger sized cereal and selling them in three packages for moms to put in their kids' um, lunch boxes because so much percentage of cereal was consumed outside of the breakfast occasion. Hmm. And so they did that design work and we nailed it. It was great. But guess what we found out? Moms are really smart. And they figured out, you know, I still can buy this big box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch and pour it into baggies for half the price right. that you're charging me for a prepackaged larger piece of the so same product. I see product. what you're doing, General Mills. I see. Exactly. And so That's you're coming in then and, and, and they're giving you this, this task. And then so you're designing the system behind it, like – the actual machines and how it's coming together is that what it looks like or? yeah for the manufacturing side we would take whatever product they would bring down and then we would adapt our systems how to make the right shapes how to toast it how to basically take what they had done what they call a little pilot project so let's say for example you and jenny decide you're going to make up some special food in your kitchen and you guys nail it and now all of a sudden you say everybody tastes oh my gosh you got to sell this stuff and then you're going, okay, so now I have to take it from my kitchen right. to a commercial kitchen to a manufacturing line Boom. and reproduce the same level of quality that you put your love and affection into it on your stovetop in this big system. There's some that was our job. There. There's some definite challenges. Like I can cook spaghetti uh, for like my family. Right. But then one time I cooked spaghetti for like 40, 50 people. And I realized I didn't know how to cook spaghetti because I everything was in clumps. And it just I was like, oh, there's whole other processes so now you're talking a whole factory floor that's crazy right and then of course there's technology involved but everything what we found with regard to food would rise and fall based on people hmm. the interface of people into the engagement i mean yeah. down to i mean you could have all kinds of systems and we had smart systems that would adjust temperatures and dryers and all that sort of stuff but we found again and again it was the consistency of people even so interesting down, Miguel, into the analysis of the final product. Like I could take this piece of cereal or this snack food and I would put it through, break it down, the chemical analysis, say, okay, this is perfect within specifications, yet it could taste like crap. Interesting. All right. So is it, so we found you out say people, you're talking about like the, the type of people, like as far as work, work ethic or what, what are you saying? from that perspective well i'm just saying here's the thing well first off i mean no like for example the best judge of the product quality was people and their mouth i see okay so we really trained up people to be so like we could have all of our parameters over here that were quote unquote in spec Mm. and the product would come through and you taste it and you're going this is crap (laughs) something happened one little thing was off maybe the temperature or the humidity that day was different and I would taste this bugle, right? If you right. remember bugles, oh, we I made love bugles those things, that were. Man. I do too. We made the, we made the healthy version of them, which was the baked bugles versus the fried bugles. Fried much better, but you would have it have, wouldn't have the right toasting. You wouldn't have the right flavor. So it was really for me the system design was about people. How do you help people engage in the system? And then the other piece of that was efficiency. I loved the transformation process. Right, yeah. you start with these truckloads of raw ingredients, and then you mix them together at some ratio, you put them through this process with the interface of man and machine, and at the end, you get this finished product. 
And then you just look at this overall thing to say, what is, how do you, this transformation process, and then how do you make it more effective, more efficient? Okay. That was really what got me pumped up about loved manufacturing. And it was interesting. So I'm involved in this process, starting up a new plant in Georgia, time in Chicago. Uh, But then in the middle of this, I'm involved in a local church there and develop a relationship, much like you and I developed with somebody who I found to be a mentor. That's what I've loved about you, Miguel, is you've always looked ahead of you. Who's somebody you can learn from? Who's somebody I can learn from with regard to my craft of vocals? Who's somebody I can learn from my craft of guitar playing? Who's somebody I can learn from my craft of entrepreneurship, creativity, leadership? You've always been a great student, and that's really a joy when you and I got to work together because you were a fantastic learner, and you're clearly continuing to demonstrate that today. And so here I am, and I had somebody who's mentoring me. And then what does he do? He speaks into my life and says, Hey, would you consider Hmm. this possibility where you would leave your vocation working for in manufacturing of food to come work and do vocational ministry? Again, the church was this vibrant part of my life. My relationship with Jesus was something very important to me and to my wife and to our family. And so we're engaged in this, but to think to kind of do my career, it felt foreign and odd, maybe even wrong. Right. Because uh, I was being successful. I was meeting those goals I felt as a kid. That I yeah, felt when you like were they, 18, 19, you knew and you found a way to make it happen. And here it you was. are. <laughs> and, and I was challenging you to do something else. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not making compromises in my faith. So it's not like I'm walking away from my faith journey. I'm seeing right. my faith grow in the midst of it. So yeah, I'm you weren't thinking, selling crack. I mean, you were, you were doing good things mm-hmm. in the world. <laughs> yeah. Giving us bugles. I, I'm something. thinking <laughs> – Part of me goes like, okay, God, why would you want me to leave? Because I'm making a lot more money now, and I'm generous. I'm my gaining in generosity. <laughs> so, uh, but it was one of those really, um, you know, I know for you, Miguel, you've had a different number of moments in your life where you kind of said, what's the right thing to do? What's the right direction? And you use wise counsel. Uh, you use your own internal kind of compass, and then you kind of have to take the risk. And it was similar for us. Us, it was... I got wise counsel. I had my own internal thing, spent time praying about it, seeing that there was some spiritual connection that could give me some direction in this decision and decided the big thing for me was that I felt like if I didn't take this risk, I had this like little vision that even though maybe as I got to the age I am now and I'd experienced great financial success, and great influence or success, and even if my family had continued to be success, I had this question of what if, what if I had? Mm. And then I look back at this potential decision that I had regrets for not taking the risk. And that really was the driving force for That's me, made it to, for Jan and I, was I didn't want to live a life of regrets, okay? Now, i got to be completely honest with you. I did not burn a bridge as I was leaving General Mills. And that's a wise way to go in anything. Like, you know, yeah, like, right? <laughs> I, matter of fact, at this point in time, I kind of had a five five plan where I had five years in the Navy. I had five years with General Mills. I thought, okay, I'll give this a five year run and make a determination right. if it's the right place and decide that, you know, I had, if there was an opportunity to come back after those five years to General Mills or something else. I mean, here I am now. 28 years later. So clearly it's been, I think a positive decision for, for me, for our family with regard to that, but that was that place. That would be my encouragement. And I think for anybody is if you're in that decision point of uh, that sort of thing, just ask yourself, hmm. uh, you know, how do you not live a life of regret? Well, you that's know? Huge and then cause... when you do make, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No. And, and then back to Ben, when you do make that decision, uh, just be very intentional about who do you got to involve in that process as you're making a decision. Mm-hmm. And some bridges will be burned. But you can't do anything about it, right? Right? Because some, some people, people will say, you leave me, your loyalty, you're disloyal, I don't th- and I'll cut you off. I mean, particularly in our cancer, cancel culture today. Right. But, if, but be it whatever my part, whatever's within my control, I'm going to be at peace. Whatever's within my control, I'm going to make sure I'm going to do the work I possibly can to help maintain the bridge and the relationships that I've had, even though I may take in a different direction, be a different career, different opportunities. So, and that's so huge that, you know, that moment where you ask, you know, what if, uh, in, in, 
took that step out because I feel like in a lot of these interviews, different entrepreneurs, people started businesses, uh, stepped out as musicians, artists, a lot of them come to that point. I think uh, I may have even got this term from you, uh, like an inflection point in your life where mm -hmm. you see two clear paths for you. Uh, but then a lot of people choose safety, but then the people who, who step out kind of in that, in that darkness in that fear of like, but they know this is where I want to go. Something beautiful can really happen. And so that, that started a whole new direction for you. And it, and it then you had even more inflection points along the way, which is really. Yeah. Uh, so we, we so um, we made a vocational change there. We're in the suburbs of Chicago coming on staff at a church there with my friend and mentor. And we were there for 12 years and saw God do some really great things. We're able to kind of uh, see God do reproduction where we started new locations. And then we started sending friends of mine out to plant new churches, new faith communities across the country in places like uh, Denver, Colorado, Bakersfield, California, Detroit, Michigan, Boston, Knoxville, Tennessee. And every time we'd send somebody new out, Cool places. I mean, every time we'd send somebody, I got to go visit a lot of these churches and, and I loved the entrepreneurial side of church planting. You saw there was nothing. You gathered people around this common cause, this mission. And then all of a sudden you have this emerge and it doesn't just emerge for their mm. well-being. You start having this ripple effect outward, right? So it becomes something that has a impact on others around them you know, that start to impact their life and direction. And I saw that's what I love about, and I saw it when I read my Bible and some of the New Testament, and I saw it happening then in the 20th century. And now I'm saying, okay, every time this happens, I ask myself, is that something I'm supposed to do? And then I asked Jan, is that something we're supposed to do? And then I asked Dave, my mentor, is that something that you see me doing? And I got it for myself. I thought, like, yeah, I think that maybe something I'm supposed to do. And my wife would say, no. <laughs> she's like mm, and I my mentor know. would say my mentor would say no hmm. so i'm like okay well the two most important people in my life clearly my life mate my partner my wife we got to be on the same page okay so if i'm if i'm hearing something she's not hearing something we just kind of so we'd have some more dialogue about it and she would say why would we leave what was happening right here guys doing some really cool things that we're a part of i'm kind of yeah you're kind of right okay and then I had to wrestle with, okay, so why? Was I discontent? Was I bored? Was there stuff inside me that was forcing me to look outward that I needed to really go, oh, no, this is the reason I want to run is I have work to do here, and then there's work to do in me. Right. And so the stain was, was, was more developmental than the going. So there was a the piece of that one. And then I kept going to my friend. He goes, no, I think you have a significant role to play. So I got affirmation that I didn't have to go run away to do it on my own for significance. I could have significance as part of the whole. Right. So those were two things that kind of kept us going. It's about a three or five year process that ultimately one point in time, uh, there was a weekend after a Sunday experience, a Sunday service. My wife came to me, Janet, and she says, Troy, I think you're supposed to plan a church. <laughs> And literally, Miguel, I'm like, what just happened here? Uh, she was a hard invasion no of earlier, right? <laughs> I know. It's like invasion of the body snatches. I'm looking at this woman. She says, you look like my wife, but you don't sound like my wife, <laughs> you know? And so she just unpacks that for me. She's seeing things in me maybe differently or the same in just a different way. I'm like, okay. I'm like, okay, one down. And then I thought to myself, well, if Dave, my mentor, would step in and give similar kind of coaching without prompting. Maybe there would be, maybe this is the, the right timing, right? Because there's direction, there's calling this vision. And then there's this thing, none of us who are creatives or entrepreneurs want to talk about is timing. Yeah. Right. Okay. Because for us, if I see it, it should become it. And if it should become it, it should become it now. Absolutely. Okay. Right? So if we I want to make it happen. <laughs> exactly. Because it's been spoken to me by the universe. Okay. Right. Uh, my something's welling up inside me. And then if I follow the path of clarity, then there will be whatever level of success I hope to achieve will, will be there. And I'm willing for the hard work, but I want the hard work to start now. Yes. Well, here I've been on this three to five year delay period. And uh, then it was just two weeks later, I'm having lunch at Lou Malnati's with my regular meeting. And he says to me, Hey, Troy, 
there's this opportunity back in Kansas City for church planting, uh, planting a church. Uh, he just tells me about it, and Kansas City was kind of my hometown where I'd, we'd grown up, just outside the southern part of the the city, actually rural in Paola, Kansas. But uh, I'm so I said there this weekend out in Paola. No way. Yeah, playing a winery. Where are you playing there. at? Uh, Somerset. No way. Yeah, you know Somerset. Yeah. Is that the one between? Is that the one between Paola and Osawatomi? I'm not quite sure. I just know it's like right out there, but it's a it's a cool I know, spot. Here's the weird part. <laughs> There's wineries in Kansas, like since when? Right. There's wineries in Missouri. Like good. Missouri's had a number of wineries for decades, okay, but not so much here. But now, I mean, you play at uh, I don't know what's the what's Jowl Creek? Is that yeah, your Jowler, most? Jowler, that's Missouri. Jowler. But then like Casey Winecoe's down there, uh, Kansas side. That's Olathe, I think. But yeah. yeah, I sidetracked you. I oh. just when you said payola. <laughs> no, but but anyway, so um, this opportunity comes up, and I say, "Hey, Dave, is this something I'm supposed to do?" And he said, "Well, why don't we spend some time and pray about it?" And then through different circumstances, it became apparent that we were supposed to leave Chicago and move to Kansas City. Now it's interesting. I'm, I was kind of long in the tooth for a church plant at that point in time. Uh, so so that, I'm like age 44, wise. Is that age long in the tooth? So most, yeah, <laughs> oh, I'm okay. long in the tooth. I mean, you think about, uh, and you, and this I think applies to any entrepreneurs, but clearly for in the creative side of the world, right? The most energy creatives have is in their twenties. Right. You see all this thing emerge with people in their twenties, and that sort of thing. That's where you make this major shift. And the and frontal then you lobe hasn't closed, so you can take more risks. You're more risk right. prone. <laughs> and then you hope that with the hard work you do in those three, five, seven, ten years, by the time you hit your 30s to mid-30s, you hit some rhythm of this is what success looks like. Right. All right? Well, it's not unlike that even in the church planting realm. A lot of church planters are in their late 20s or early 30s where you get to go. You've got a little seasoning there now that you've had some experience within it, and then you go try something new because you've got both the seasoning experience, but you've also got the energy and creativity to try something new. Right. Well, here I am. I'm 44. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite a ways down the road. Great for experience, but you're also like, okay, it's kind of like uh, the breakthrough artist at 44. You right. know, it's the, it's that movie why it makes big sense when they call him the rookie, right? Where <laughs> the pitcher who's 38 years old is a rookie baseball pitcher right. or whatever, because he's been where forever. And so here we are, we come out here. And then of course, the other piece about it is you have an established life that you're having to transition mm. that creates more complication. We have three kids at this point in time. We have a 16 year old, a 13 year old and a seven year old. Yeah. So transitioning and moving them from their fam, their, their kind of community to a new place to start new. We understood the cost was going to be pretty high for them. So, but we moved them out here and I'll tell you, one of the things you and I were talking about earlier, just before we jumped on the, the podcast, we were talking about just the idea of relationships within the family, the work that you've done with regard to your sons, the work that Jan and I have done with regard to our relationship with our two sons and our daughter, that that change, that transformational change, that move, that disruption, that I think really was catalytic about their relationships with one another mm -hmm. and their relationship with us. Now, it wasn't easy. I mean, one of our sons, like literally for an entire year, just was emotionally distraught. Right. Like his life had been ripped apart from him. He just now he was 13 years old. And as you've gone through now the teens with one of your sons and in the middle of another 13 year old, you don't know which part of it's because they moved or just because they're 13. Yeah. Middle okay? school is tough, man. It's just a it's tough. It's, it's the it's been the roughest spot for each one of our kids. Yep. So far, so, us as well. <laughs> And so uh, we navigated that one. But I do think that thing, working through something together, engaging uh, the other piece I would encourage somebody, engaging your family into whatever the calling you have is recognizing it may be your job. But if you're invested, you are like you are with run with it, that you are with live and create with you are the things you are that it's not just a you and it's not just a you with your wife picking up the pieces. No, it is a family thing. Mm -hmm. now, they don't have the same responsibilities, but if you can get them involved, they become, have some level of ownership for it. It can be a game changer. Absolutely. And it was for ours. 
And we're seeing now the repercussions of that in a positive way. Here we are 15 years later, right? With regard to all the engagement that and... my son and daughter-in-law, they're all married. They're engaged in things. Uh, they talk back. They, they look back even at that time of engagement where it wasn't dad went to do his thing. No, we were part of something bigger than ourselves. Mm-hmm. That even though, I mean, my daughter was seven, so she, she was invested even then with regard to what was happening as this new faith community, this new church was coming to life, that she had a role to play. Right. And she sees the significance of that one. So it really draw, brought us together as a family and I think gave the kids some idea of what purpose looked like. Well, and that's such a powerful piece of your story. There's so many great things in there. Uh, but that piece of you know having your family bring them along as you take this risk. Because I've seen, especially in the arts world, but honestly, I mean, we've seen it even in the church world uh, where people – you, sometimes you, you get one or the other. They're using their family as an excuse to not follow after their dreams or the calling or whatever it is in front of them, or they pursue that dream and pursue that calling at the expense of their family. But right. I think there's yeah. this beautiful thing that happens. There's a, a former guest uh, artist named Drew Six, uh, and he does an incredible job of still pursuing this this dream of his music and going out to Nashville recording but then like bringing his daughter along with him. And it's like that when you learn how to write, and it's a tough road, right? You, when you learn how to walk that tightrope of it, I think really beautiful things can happen. Cause one is just unreal. One side's unrealized potential. Uh, and honestly, the people use the excuse, I think resentment can grow. But then on the other side, obviously if you're at the expense of your family, that that's gonna destroy really everything. Like it'll even destroy the dream you're chasing at that point you know yeah it's really interesting that you talk about that because uh, you know i think the, the challenge though is we have a cultural pressure of what family looks like or what mm-hmm. that looks like and so if i'm not present on a 24 7 basis so right. traveling has this negative connotation so that would keep somebody from a dream yet the traveling piece that you talked about with your friend and his ability to bring his daughter along has created a global exposure for her that she would not have in any other way. Absolutely. And That's so like I do think Trey that piece... went on the road with us, it was, it was just crazy, you know, where you got to see like life with all my guys and, get to go into campus we gave him a camera and that's where he actually fell in love with doing video and now does video for like rappers and and this kind of thing you know it's those kind of things are amazing to see uh right as they like you said they they find their own ownership in it that's good uh and the other piece about is i mean when talking about this is we we didn't have expectations our kids had to be at everything but that they had to find a role to play based on their appropriate age. So it was one where, hey, we're doing something. So it's like, okay, you don't have to be a guitar player, but in your family, hey, you got to expose yourself to art because we think there's a value in art. So you got to find something inside the art realm that you enjoy. Ours, it was, hey, inside the church expression, we want you to find a way where you can contribute at where you are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, two of our kids found it with regard to the arts, music, one, was keyboards and he played keyboards with you all right right. and then another all right another one of our kids uh was about using uh, keyboards but vocally all right and found her love now even in guitar and writing music and leading worship and then one of my sons was not particularly musical he likes to think he raps but he's not very particularly good (laughs) at it he's just large so i don't argue with him (laughs) exactly uh but he found it in his leadership of the generation behind him. So when he was in high school, he was leading uh, fourth and fifth grade boys in a small group experience to talk about life and talk about Jesus. So again, that's my encouragement with regard to when somebody's taking something new on, if they can help their family, not just mm. be a part of it from a ideology, uh, ideological or conversation, but find a role to play inside. I think it can create some significance and movement. Yeah. I love that. I love, but, I love that you, you model it. Uh, so well of of walking that tightrope because I, I just think a lot of people haven't seen it you know it t- still to this day and I'm meeting more and more people mm-hmm. who do but it, it seems to still be a rare thing as you as people walk into entrepreneurial endeavors especially like you said later in life uh, when they get right. this new dream yeah and I think that's the place where again our culture puts pressure on us to protect and we have this illusion of protection. If I separate, if I 
create this false dichotomy of this is this world over here. So I pour all myself into it. And then I shut that world off and I step back in to this other world that makes me a better dad or a better mom or a better brother or a better something. Okay. Right. Friend versus having a uh, integrated life. Right. Yeah. And that's where I think, even I think about our relationship with you, my relationship with you over the years was what does it look like to who's the whole person of Miguel? Not just Miguel is the worship leader or Miguel is the artist. Who's the whole person of Miguel? Miguel is the husband, the father. Uh, and just this journey you and I have had together over those uh, number of years where we got to do life on a day in, day out basis right. was who's Miguel becoming, right? While you're doing what you're doing. And that was really, I think, the driving force for our relationship. And I try even from a leadership perspective to be thinking about that. You know, well, so that's, I, that's uh, one thing that I yeah. think I've referenced a lot of just seeing how much I learned from your leadership style and the way that you modeled to care for people deeply while also pursuing excellence, pursuing goals and trying to build something, you know, and because, again, you can get like the extremes where you find people who are just yeah. all about the goals and the metrics uh, or you find people who just really want to love on people, but they're really not going anywhere. And so, again, like, how do you walk in the middle of that? And I think I, I learned so much uh, from you by seeing that and being challenged to it quite often. Uh, and I think really it's, in my opinion, it's like the only way to lead. And, and yeah. I think it's becoming, luckily, I, I do think culturally that is actually becoming more popular. Like people are celebrating that more and more, even in like, yeah, I, I, environments. <laughs> Right. Uh, I, I was thinking, literally knowing we're going to have this conversation today. It's ironic. I'm pulling up Facebook to wish to people a happy birthday, and then pops up in my feed nine years ago. I don't know why. Maybe Facebook know I was going to talk with you today. It's a picture of you on stage leading, and on stage leading with you was Kenzie Russell playing bass, uh, and then you had three high school students with That's you. Awesome. Scotty Combs was one of them. All right. Oh, yeah. So it was these three, okay, it was these three high school students who had kind of their band that you kind of took under your wing. And what I loved about that is I can remember hours where I'm in my office and I'm hearing you downstairs and you're working on your craft, right? <clears throat> of you're working on playing guitar, you're working vocally, you're singing, you're just going, okay, how do I get better and more excellent in my execution of the craft and the gifts you've been given? But here I have this snapshot of clearly not the best band you could have put on the stage. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> there was no question that was not the best band that you could have put on the stage. Mm -hmm. But there you saw the tension, right? The tension of how do I look at these people to give them opportunities for growth and exposure, okay, mm -hmm. while they get better at the same point in time, we want to be excellent and execute well. Right. So I think you did a great job of living in that tension of looking at, I want to develop people. I want to give people opportunities because if I just stay with the people I have, the lid will become more real. If I get the opportunities here, everybody gets better. Everybody gets better faster. And right. so I, I have to say that's something that I think you exemplified. And the other piece that I think was great, that what Dave did for me when I made the transition from working for General Mills to going to do vocational ministry at Community Christian Church was he had this I see in you conversation. You know, I talk about the four, you know, four most important letters of the alphabet, I see and you, right? Yeah. He saw something in me that I couldn't see clearly. He saw the potential, the opportunity, so he called it out. And I think that's where I hopefully had sometimes with you and with others is calling out that I see in you the opportunities maybe ahead of you, or sometimes it's the things you already see. You just need somebody else to speak the truth over you. Right. Other times it's not, it's the blind spots we don't, we, we don't see. So it's like, can you show me something I can't see in myself? And then you are able to, I see this in you and let me tell you why. Right. And so there's, it's not just an emotional prop you up, give you an applause. All right. You know, no, it's, I see this in you because here's our, some facts so it's yeah. both the words of encouragement but based on you know the facts of observation well and i that i see in you conversation it is very powerful i remember talking to an artist once where i and and i can be a driver and i was pushing this artist too hard and it was causing a lot of complications um but as we work things out i remember you know apologizing for 
to this person of saying like, I'm sorry for pushing so hard on you. I'll just kind of back off. And, and sometimes I have dreams for people that they don't have for themselves. Mm -hmm. And they actually looked at me and they said, no, don't, don't necessarily back off fully. And they, they said, they said, I don't have like those dreams in front of me. So when you cast those dreams out, it kind of inspires me to go for yeah. it. And it, that was such an eye-opening conversation because I, like, I thought it was just clear to, to them <laughs> that, that they had these gifts and they could go somewhere with right. it, but they didn't see it for themselves. So sometimes we can take that for granted that people don't see it for themselves and maybe having that conversation can open their eyes to it. Yeah, I think uh, you just you hit on it right there, Miguel, because you've now developed a relationship because you're not long in the tooth, but you've been doing this art thing for a couple of days. Yeah, a few right? days. <laughs> you've been you OK. I mean, I was looking truthful. I was looking back at your resume and I was remembering back when you and I first had interaction with each other. You're doing blues to Bach. OK. Oh, yeah. Well, Bach to blues. I can't. Blues all right. To Bach, yeah. So you were blues to Bach. OK. That you were doing that when you spent some time at Westside. Uh, and then you and I had the interaction more fully when you were kind of serving with regard to uh, uh, Pleasant Valley. Uh, and, and it was just kind of really interesting to see how now with regard to your experience that you've had and your expertise, how the power of permission giving, okay, yeah. that you just talked about there, the pushing, where you're like giving permission, you're giving either permission for them to dream or permission them to press forward or to right. break through kind of the confines of where they see themselves are. And so many people I do believe, think need that permission from somebody they trust, somebody that loves them and trusts them. Sometimes the love is not just this warm, fuzzy love. It's the love that you demonstrate by, hey, come on, man, step <laughs> it up. If you don't take advantage of the gifts you have, you're being foolish and irresponsible. Right. So sometimes that can be that puff love, but nonetheless, it's kind of permission. It says, hey, I want to give you permission to see bigger. I want you to get permission to take more risks. And I do think that that inside our culture is a place that uh, people in mentoring versus saying, hey, don't do this. You know, that basically putting up roadblocks for people, right. I think is a great gift that we can give anybody that we're kind of mentoring or developing. Right. Definitely. Do you got a few more minutes? It's coming up on noon. Do you, yeah. do you have a heart out? You got it. Because uh, there's no. a few, there was another thing in your story I wanted to bring up because it's hitting me personally too, but you talked about this idea like you wanted it now, right? Is that, that that three to five year mark that you ended up having to take to do the inward journey? And right. one thing I've just been spent a lot of time reflecting on is because I'm an ambitious person. You obviously were, an amb were and are an ambitious person. Right. Um, but it seems like the ambition can almost become like, a drug in and of itself oh. instead of like uh, I'm, I'm forming it because it's all very fresh in my mind I'm like I'm, I'm actually reading through a book right now that that this guy's talking about some of these same concepts but yeah so it's basically like for anyone who wants to start a business or, or step out and do something fresh and new like church planning those kind of things you have to, I think to do it well you have to find a way that the ambition isn't necessarily like feeding all of that, but you're, it's like a quiet confidence. And I, do you feel like that three to five year journey is that that's what helped you? That's what developed oh. inside of you to where it's more of an overflow, I guess, than a chasing. Maybe that's a better way. Like what does it look like to oh. have success be an overflow instead of constantly chasing it? That, Miguel, I think you articulated that well. I, I think if what I had done the very first of beginning, part of it would have been, driven by my ambition for identity or success. Okay. Right. And both of those are powerful tools that when they get channeled well, can be effective. And if they get channeled poorly, can become destructive. Right. As soon as I get my identity and success, then I'm just chasing it to all other things. And if failure occurs, I lose who I am. Right. Okay. And, and so that's the place where it doesn't matter if it happens to be in church or in building a business or in running a band that piece. So the, the question was, I think if I had done it, pushed through and done it early and had been successful, it would have been an engine that would have driven me to a less healthy version of myself mm -hmm. and even to the pain of potential destruction, right? We right. have way too many stories of successful people, be it even successful pastors who've collapsed because they're driven by the success and the rest of their lives uh, become 
wrecks, all right? Train wrecks, ship wrecks, you know, plane crashes, that sort of thing, because they, they, they kind of miss out because they keep getting driven by it. And I think the other piece for me is I had to have – the other piece of it is I had to have enough confidence that I was so called to do this, I had to do this, that I could push through failures, mm-hmm. right? Because if I'm supposed to do this and I run and I don't have this quiet calm, as soon as I start hitting the wall – I just go, okay, I guess I, I guess I heard wrong. This is the wrong I guess spot. I felt Let's wrong. <laughs> exactly. Uncle, I'm running back to that bridge, that, that safety bridge that would have created back with General Mills. I'm running back to it <laughs> because I didn't spend the, the processing time to figure out the, if I'm really or really not supposed to do this. Why am I called to do this? What, what's all the stuff inside me? Good part of it was really a positive thing, but part of the thing was no. Again, even with regard to starting new things, am I called – towards something or am I called to an antithesis? And sometimes we just start, well, I don't like what I'm doing. So I'm going to go do something else. Mm. And that usually can create some really positive things, but I'm not sure it creates the best health. Right. All right. It's not. It, it, so what am I against? If I start my, my platform for what I'm against versus what I'm for. Okay. And I'm telling you in our environment right now, you get way more clicks for what you're against. Yeah, Absolutely. That's the easy okay. thing to do. It's the easy thing. Yeah. So it's the easy thing then versus going like, okay, so you're against all these things. What are you for? Mm-hmm. All right. And I think it's that's where you that, live and create. That that had actually changed. I, I've shared a lot on this podcast about I I got into the I'm against all these things season of my life, and is actually another friend of mine who he basically said he, in his own way what you're saying, where it's like. He's like, I finally just realized I was going to focus on the things that I actually cared about instead of all the things that I hate. And I'm way happier now, you know, <laughs> and the people yeah. around me are way happier. <laughs> and right. And that, so that then, moment and it, so, changed my perspective. So. And so in it, I think it gives you um, it gives you the resolve. All right. So I think when you're doing something, you're, you're going to have to have resolve if you're going to be creating something new. You're going to have to be able to have resilience, okay? Endurance. There's all these not as sexy terms, okay, of the things that it's going to take. Yeah, that's not the fun part. (laughs) No, okay? That's not, okay? Those are the things that it takes. But when you do that, you have this quiet comfort when you aren't successful, when that tour didn't go well, when that opening of that particular store didn't go well, when the COVID takes your business or your church and just shrinks you by a third over by a half overnight. And you're going like, it comes back at a much slower pace than it went away. What do you do in the midst of all that one? That's where you've got to have those kind of that resolve and resilience because you go back to the work you did before it ever started Mm -hmm. to know, Oh no, I'm supposed to do this. Yeah. I'm supposed to do this. So I don't know all the answers because I'm a new day and age, which is also the fun part of both of what we're doing is I think there's extreme clarity on what we have for the mission that we're called to. Mm-hmm. But I think the models for executing that are going to have to have much greater adaptability Always shift. as we're moving yeah. forward. Exactly. Than we've had in the past. And I say that's probably true as much in the music industry or in the entertainment industry as a whole than even many things, you know, with regard to <laughs> how do I get, you know, I mean, business side is one thing, internet service providers, you know, products, but I think right. particularly the music business, as you've educated me even before the pandemic has been this ever evolving thing oh, yeah. with regard to now, it's like everything changes fast. Well, and I think I remember we would coach uh, potential church planners saying like, if you could do mm-hmm. anything else, maybe go do that. Right. You know, and I found myself now talking to other artists, kind of saying the same thing. And I think the root of that is just if you don't love it and it's not an overflow, like from who you are, like you said, you're not going to be able to endure through all that pain. It is so true. It's, I mean, it's hate to be as cliche, but it's kind of like the old shopping adage, right? Uh, we don't typically do the shopping as most of us click online that. If you don't love it in the store, you won't like it when you get home. So okay, <laughs> so it's like you got you to have something that says, "I just, I, 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 this is the greatest thing I've ever had." Because then, by the time you get home, you'll still like it. But if you don't, it's like, "Oh, it's okay in the store." 
Why don't waste your time with it? Yeah. You're either going to find it's back way in the closet or you'll have to bring it back later. So that's, so I do good. think there is something I still about do that the with depth. shopping online. Sometimes I'm like, man, click. And then it comes like through the mail. I'm like, ah, oh, damn, I got to send this back. <laughs> like, I didn't even <laughs> like it. You know, man, well, there... oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. Uh, there are so many, like I said, so many lessons, but there is one, one piece before we get to the closing two questions. But, uh, I think one of the most impactful things, one of the things I've carried with me the most is your leadership through open handedness. Um, and I remember it, we talked about like the difference between bounded and center sets. And so for, for the listener, a bounded, a bounded set is like, if you have a farm, you put fence fencing around it to keep the cattle in. Um, but there's also a centered set where you, you don't have a fence, you know, like in, I think it was Australia, their, their farms are way too large, uh, to to put up enough fence so what they did is they created a center point and they put in the things that the cattle would need they, they have the water and the food so they could roam and go wherever they wanted to but they always knew here's the core that we come back to and mm-hmm. I, so that open-handedness you led with i think was really powerful even down a point where I, I remember it made we had some contentious times about it where like there was a time where my family's going through some things. I wanted to take a vacation during, you know, in retrospect, I look back now, especially, you know, leading all my own things. Like, I, I can't believe you didn't just put the kibosh and say, you cannot leave right now. <laughs> Cause it was one of our like most important times of the year. Um, and I remember, you know, us going back and forth about it, but you're like, I understand. I respect your decision. I would prefer you not to do this. And, and I, I did, I, I went, I, me and my family got out of town. It was healing for us as a family. Um, but it also, I remember being on that trip and just thinking one, that you actually did love me. Uh, you actually did care for who I was. And two, it, it, it kind of put this like resolve in me where it's like, like, damn, whatever he asks, I'm going to definitely do it. Cause I really pulled a lot of change <laughs> out on this one as well. So it, it like grew my respect to the point where it's like, I wanted to follow you more. Uh, so I'm curious for you, what has that always been natural? That open handedness. Did you learn that along the way? Yeah, I learned, no, that's learned. That's learned. I, 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 I want things my way. I always be doing that. I'm, I'm right. 51% of the time. So I'm always right. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, those are just things that have, are part of my personality. I think they're just part of the, the human culture that the, the, the person that I'm, I'm most going to struggle with is me. Mm. You know, I want the center of, I'm a, I want the center of the universe to revolve around me. There's this innate selfishness, you know, within us that drives me as the center right. force. And if everybody would just do it my way, the world would be awesome. I have a little bit of that. So the, I have a little bit of that. So okay. I, I can relate. <laughs> So the idea of being open-handed one, I think is a complete learned response. I think, you know, for me, it's even kind of this supernatural piece that gives me something that helps me be the best version of myself um, that I don't even have complete that I'd love to, you know, and that one would be, I'd say that there's a spiritual influence that helps me be a better version to live more open-handed than I would naturally. Uh, but the idea inside this piece for me was uh, like, even on that particular situation, there's a couple of things. Honestly, uh, you had a big bank deposit. So you'd made deposits relationally with me, hmm. with how you operated that. Yeah, this was going to be a withdrawal. Okay. <laughs> was, there's right. no doubt. This was not, this is going to be a withdrawal and it might even, it might have, you might even, had your bank account go in the negative for a hot second, but because right. you'd made so many deposits, the risk was worth it. So that's the place where you're looking is going like, um, if it had been one where you took the two weeks before and then I was, you're going to be gone again two weeks later, I'm like, wow, this, that this is a little different. Really <laughs> not a little, little different. The other piece about it is, is you weren't, uh, you, I did, wasn't surprised by the journey because you and I had conversations about what was going on in your life before that moment, mm-hmm. right? So because we'd had conversations about what was going on in your life before that moment, when you're saying, hey, this is that one, I'm going like, I got an opportunity. I could hard fist this guy like, no. Or I could go like, no, I, I do love this guy and I trust his understanding of what's going on better than me because he's in the midst of it. Mm. And I want the desired outcome. You have a desired outcome. You were going 
to take this risk with me with a desired outcome that things within your familiar unit would be better because of it. Right. And I'm going like, okay, that's where we're com- we're in common things on that one. Now the journey you're getting there is going to make my life more complicated. <laughs> and I hate making, I hate a complicated life when I had it easy with you. Okay. You would have made my life more easy. You being gone made my life more complicated. <laughs> so those were the two things. And then the other piece for me that just helped has always helped me <clears throat> is the long view. The long view is the, the fact that I think so often we get caught up in the short view. I get so pissed off because you leaving is going to make my life a pain. Right. Like literally you being gone, I'm going to have, you're going to scurry, but I know it's going to be less effective. It's not going to be as good, all the things. Right. And then I'm going to have to put extra energy in while you're gone to cover for you. Hmm. Okay. In a time when I really need your leadership. So I knew that that was going to be, but that was the short view. And so I, I, because the long view was, oh man, this is a guy who has, and I believe who will. Uh, And so that's where I think for most people, we completely overestimate what we can accomplish in the short term and underestimate what we can do over the long haul. And so I think even on the negative side, the short term tends to drive us toward making reactionary decisions. And those are the other two words that have really been a part of my, try to make it a part of my life is how do I respond versus how do I react? Mm. That's good. And so, and usually it takes for me time. So I have to say, don't react, don't react. And because I do (laughs) want to react, man. And we both, both you and I, we have um, word selections that can cut. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Okay. And uh, a vocabulary that can tear down. Hmm. Uh, And so those are the things that for me inside my reactions that I've known that about myself and when you see the damage that it does, be it within the most personal relationship, your spouse and your children, and then with your coworkers and your friends, your extended family, you go, like, oh, I have a choice. Either I leverage that and I get short-term power because I can destroy and it gives me a position of power, or I can respond and figure out what are those, what, what, what are we going to do? And I think those are the, the pieces inside being open-handed. Yeah. Because it's easy to be open-handed when you got somebody great and you're doing everything great. Right. So I love when you give me that situation, right? It was most of the time with you, it was really easy. Hey, that's what <laughs> I'm thinking about doing this one. Oh, yeah, why don't you, Miguel? Because you're going to do it. You're going to execute. You're going to execute it at a better capacity than I could ever. It was this, I think it was a great scenario you talk about. It was like, hey, I need you to be open-handed, and it's going to make your life worse. Oh, yeah. okay. This, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> but, it does suck. And, well, and I, you bring up a great point, too, though. And I think it was a lesson I learned along the way, too, is the moment I sensed I had to put harder parameters on people that I was leading was usually the moment I knew that harder conversations need to be had. And sometimes it meant that they weren't in the right role, you know. And so it's like the high control situation is sometimes just meant to keep I mean, to go with the analogy, this sounds really crass, but like to keep the wrong livestock in the on the wrong farm, you know, it's like maybe you're just in the in, in the wrong farm, uh, and maybe I need it. Yeah, that just sounds really bad. I don't mean people as livestock, but <laughs> but I was just going with no. the farming analogy on that. But but yeah, that that is huge because the open handedness only works when I think there's a high level of trust in what I'm, I'm hearing from what you're saying. So. Yeah, very, very much so. It's interesting you talk about that with regard to the structural parameters. I think that's the biggest challenge with regard to with a church, uh, with a, a band, with a business, anybody that as you continue to grow, you add additional people and you start having some outliers. Mm-hmm. All right. Our first response, because the simplest thing is to put in structure, fences, boundaries, policies, whatever you want to call them, to address the issues of the outliers. And it typically doesn't add value to the normative expression of the organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes it does. Sometimes you can. It catalyzes. It it, it draws the outliers back in and accelerates the normative uh, people that are living within the culture that you've created. But most of the time it doesn't. And so I think it's the easier piece versus going and addressing the outliers in a way that's kind of coaching, challenge, and then figuring out, hey, are they in the right seat in the bus and should they be in the bus? Right. Right. Cause those are, the, those are the questions that have to be answered. And when you do that, I think early in the organization, 
don't get me wrong. I think we have to have structure and policies right. and all that can be very helpful over time. But I think we put those in too soon so that you and I, as the point leaders or who's ever kind of leading the organization, doesn't have to address the interpersonal issues that create this conflict and dissonance. But when we do it, all right, and even when we make those hard calls, that's the place for me. I remember when I was working for General Mills and I had to go through a really difficult situation to take one of my uh, frontline managers through kind of a development process and ultimately exit him out. Uh, it was hard, hard, really liked the guy, but just wasn't the right fit. And um, the, the, I thought the repercussion would be negative when we had to exit him out, but it was actually very positive. That by me addressing that issue within the culture created higher level of trust with others. Right. Right. That, Hey, you know, it's the same sort of thing where I know that you had to do with a couple, you had to address really difficult issues mm-hmm. that said, Hey, we're here. We're going here, man. You are wonderful here. Love you. Okay. Can you take it to here? And you give them opportunities and it just doesn't happen. Right. And as a matter of fact, they start going this direction and you're going, who this, this needs to change. <laughs> Cause the ones that are coming over here are going, Okay, Miguel, I love you, but man, we don't feel like we're gaining the traction based on the effort I'm putting in. Right. You make the adjustment, all of a sudden you're going like, yeah, sure enough, that hard choice creates a positive thing. And then you didn't have to create the policy that also takes the creativity away from yes, stifles the ones that really else. are living. And exactly. I, think, I think you said in there, it often policies are a replacement for having real conversations with people. And asking the hard oh. questions, you know. And and, and so clearly, when you get an organization that's hundreds of people, you have to have those that create those. <laughs> it does. But when yes. you're talking about organizations of five to fifty, mm-hmm. you really it takes extra effort. But those one-on-one conversations, and that's the thing where I think that's the most powerful tool in the toolkit that I've used is one-on-one conversations. Yeah. And not just one-on-one for discipline, it's one-on-one for development. It's really being able to have conversations with somebody that dives into how they're doing, but also dives into the coaching relationship to identify the things they're working on, challenge them to come up with strategies and plans, and then both either permission giving or redirection through that process. And I think most organizations early on fail to do that one because they just see it as a meeting and another meeting is a waste of time when we could be doing what we should be doing. Right. And I think that it is a gift when people do them well. Hmm. Not as efficient short-term, but hits the long-term much better. Absolutely. That's awesome, man. Well, yeah, that the open-handedness is, is one thing I have often referenced. Uh, I reference myself while I'm leading as well. Um, and even, you know, even the conversations that we had as I was exiting about where my faith was going, kind of unraveling, even your openness to have those conversations still to this day means a ton to me. So, uh, I, that example is huge and I try to live out that same example, but, uh, last two questions of off the podcast. So right now in your life, how would you define living a great life? Oh, uh, I'd say living a great life right now is relationally connected to the people you value most. Okay. And what that means is developing a level of uh, relational intimacy. That's one where you're invested in their lives beyond the surface. And so that's the place where both the family and the friends around me have become a higher value over the course of the last number of years. The second pace about it now where I'm in the, the kind of, um, uh, afternoon edge. It's not the evening of my career, but we're definitely in the afternoon of my career. Is am I le- leveraging everything I have for legacy? Am I doing what I would call hero making, where whatever influence I have, am I leveraging it to build up my own platform to stand on it as tall as I can for as long as I can so that people can see me? Or am I leveraging my intentional gifting, energy, and calling to build platforms for other people to stand on? to be able to be on those platforms maybe earlier than they would if they had to go build on their own, but I can leverage my giftedness, my time, my relationships, create those platforms for others because they're going to take it further to the next generation. And I think that's the place right now. If I'm not giving my best energy to the next generation, I'm probably missing out on my calling for this season of my career and my life. That's awesome. 
when I, I have some friends who are retired and lever leveraging it well and then I know some other people who are retired and they like go to the gym for four hours a day because they don't know what to do and uh, it's like right. I think it's amazing to hear someone has a vision where it's like oh this is just another season of of building even cool things, you know, cooler things, uh, and helping really well, build other people. So <laughs> I do have to say that's the nice part about the Bible versus American culture. Cause I can't find retirement in the Bible. Yeah. Okay. But what I can find is turning the leadership mantle over to the next generation hmm. and I can see it done well and I can see it done poorly. Yep. I've, I've seen and so I'm just trying to figure out what it looks like. Well, <laughs> What, what, what does it look like to be done well to hand over the leadership mantle to the next generation? And then what does it look like for you to step back into a role? Uh, um, my biggest dream, Miguel, would be I'd love to have the role of sage. Mm. Okay? Just sage. That ultimately, I'm the person that if I got to spend time with you, is it would be a source of encouragement, okay? A source of reflection, and then a little bit of challenge, but I'm not the tip of the spear. I'm, you are, you're going to be the, and so ultimately what can I do to be the source? And then you come to me and I'll give you wisdom based on my experience, but not ever telling you what to do. Right. Hey, this is just a pot of experience. Here's what I've experienced in this one. You take whatever parts from that one. And then you facilitate yours so that you're moving forward, that there's a, a wealth of knowledge, but also encouragement that's offered up. And so no matter how old you are, it's available. Versus me telling you, hey, based on what I used to do, this is what you should do. <laughs> I think that's so my generation gets stuck, right? When you get in your late 50s, in your mid 60s, and in your 70s, you start living back. Well, back when we were, this is the way we do it. So therefore, this is how you should do it. Right. And I'm trying to break that pattern, at least in my own life. That's awesome. I'm sure you're well on the way to that, man. It, it sounds like creating a whole new art form. <laughs> <laughs> well, for the last question... Uh, right now in your life, how would you define creating great things? Oh, <clears throat> uh, creating great things to me is empowering the next generation to fulfill their calling at an accelerated rate. That's and so it really is about relationships than it is about what I can accomplish or what I have. That if I can use my best energy to create accelerated influence for the next generation, then I feel like that is greatness because then I get to step back and see what can be accomplished that can, I could, I might get to see in my lifetime. I think many things I won't. That's awesome, man. Well, let everyone know if, if and if you want people reaching out to you, um, let them know uh, how they can connect with you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you connect with me on a variety. You can email me at Troy at RestoreCC.org. I'm on uh, Instagram at ShakerTM. I'm on Facebook at Troy McMahon. Love to connect with you in any way. Uh, if you got any interest in having more conversations about this leadership church, uh, church planting, or how to be around Miguel for an extended period of time, please give me a <laughs> holler. I can give you some insight and at least my experience on all those things. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thanks for making the time, man. Love you, brother. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Live and Create podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe and leave a comment or a review. The Live and Create podcast.